0: Today on Something You Should Know, if you drink low-fat milk or eat low-fat yogurt, there's something you need to hear. Then, taking care of your skin the right way. And there are a lot of myths out there. The notion that if you let a wound air out, it'll heal faster
1: is so incredibly wrong. In reality, if you cut yourself, we know that if you keep it moist, it'll heal about fifty percent faster.
0: Plus, a simple strategy to instantly free up a lot of space in your house. And how to make time for the things that matter most by eliminating the defaults in life.
2: Things that we do automatically or the defaults that are in our devices. Our phones check for email automatically and show us a notification when we have a new message. These defaults really are to blame for a lot of the feelings that we have that we aren't in control of our time.
0: All this today on Something You Should Know. Ask a business owner or manager who's looking to hire someone, and they'll often use the word hope. As in, I hope I find someone good. I hope this person works out. You don't want hope. You want to nail this perfectly, because the right people can make all the difference to your business. No, you don't need hope. You need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I think makes Indeed special is that it's not just names and resumes. It's a system that guides you through the hiring process to help you get the right candidate for the job. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners to this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash something. You just go to Indeed.com slash something right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on something you should know. Indeed.com slash something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. <laughs> Something you should know, fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life.
3: Today, Something You Should Know, with Mike Carruthers.
0: Hi, welcome. You probably remember, it wasn't that long ago, that conventional wisdom was, I believed, you probably believed, that the way to keep your weight under control and to eat a healthier diet was to eat low-fat food. But the whole low-fat food movement has pretty much gone out the window. But one of the lasting changes of the low-fat food movement in this country is that many people switched from whole milk to low-fat or skim milk. And the same thing goes for other dairy products like yogurt and cheese. There is still this idea that low-fat is better than whole in the minds of many. However, research has proven that this just is not true. Scientists at Tufts University published research that found that people who consume full-fat dairy products had as much as a 46% lower risk of developing diabetes over the course of 15 years compared with those who drank skim milk and ate low-fat yogurt and low-fat cheese. And if that doesn't convince you, there's another study, this one of more than 18,000 middle-aged women, all part of the Women's Health Study, and it found that those who ate more high-fat dairy had an 8% lower chance of becoming obese over time compared to those who ate low-fat dairy. And that is something you should know. You've probably heard it said that your skin is the largest organ of your body. And because it's right there on the outside, it is the organ you're probably most familiar with and the one that you spend a lot of time taking care of. Yet some of the things many of us believe about our skin are wrong. And today we're going to set that right and talk about how to keep your skin looking and feeling great with dermatologist Dr. David LaFell. He is an internationally recognized expert in skin health. He is founder and chief of the Dermatologic Surgery Program at Yale Medicine and author of the book Total Skin – The Definitive Guide to Whole Skin Care for Life. Hey, doctor. Welcome. Happy to be here. So as a doctor, as a dermatologist, how do you view the skin? How do you, when you look at a patient, what are you looking at? What is the skin to you?
1: It's true that the skin is the largest organ in the body, but it's a very complex organ, in fact. Um, What's interesting is it's the one organ that we all know the best right? People know whether their skin is itchy, whether they have a cut, whether they have a rash. They don't necessarily know what condition their kidneys are in. Uh, and for that reason, uh, the skin becomes the focus not only of individuals, but also of the the physician, the dermatologist, the primary care doctor. The skin, in some ways, is a window into the body because There are conditions that people can develop that find expression in the skin and underlying all of that is the complexity of the organ where, uh, the immune system plays a primary role. Uh, the wound healing cascade, as we call it, plays a primary role and, uh, temperature regulation in the body. Uh, anybody who has ever found themselves sweating understands that, uh, so one could go on and on about the various functions of the skin, but in a nutshell, it's much more complex than we would imagine just looking at our own skin.
0: Because, as you said, our skin is the one organ that we know the best, what are some of the myths that have cropped up that you see as a, as a doctor that people believe when it comes to caring for their own skin?
1: One thing that immediately comes to mind, and we still deal with it, uh, especially those of us that do surgical dermatology, the notion that if you let a wound air out, it'll heal faster, uh, is so incredibly wrong that it's amazing the myth has persisted for so long. In reality, if you cut yourself, if you have a surgical wound, if you have anything on the skin that needs to heal. We know that if you keep it moist, it'll heal about 50% faster. And when you stop and think about it, all of us started in a moist environment. Cells divide more rapidly in a moist environment. And that is one of the reasons why we always say apply Vaseline, or in some cases an antibiotic ointment to a wound and in fact it'll heal much faster. So that's a very narrow answer to your question. With respect to general skin health, I think that moisturization uh, continues to be uh, the foundation of good skin care. and it's not that there have been substantial innovations in how to take care of the skin but rather we live in increasingly artificial environments, forced air heating in the winter in cold climates, air conditioning at other times, and that tends to alter the ambient moisture, which affects your skin.
0: So something I've always wondered is, you know, when you get a cut, the concern is always that it it might get infected. Well, but it might not. And so why... Why do some cuts get infected and some don't?
1: One of the reasons that most scratches and cuts don't get infected in healthy people, regardless of whether they use an antibiotic cream or not, is that there's a natural bacterial population on the skin that competes with the bad bacteria, the ones that would cause an infection if they could. They kind of uh, are there to crowd out the the bad bacteria. But whenever there are discoveries or innovations in dermatology, again, going back to my earlier comment about everyone is much more familiar with their skin than they are with their internal organs, Uh, it also means that people like to experiment and try different things on their skin. And this goes back uh, certainly to uh, the earliest of recorded times in ancient Egypt, the use of all sorts of liniments that were used to try to improve the skin and deal with injuries to the skin. But we're still uh, at the stage of doing a lot of research, its role in eczema in children, uh, you know, where the skin barrier has broken down and and the kids can get superficial infections. Um, But it's also created, as these type of uh, discoveries often do, a whole world of non-regulated uh web-based commercial products, uh skincare products that aim to restore your microbiome and uh, i think if uh, a listener were to google it they'd be amazed at how many products are out there, not a single one of which as far as i know has ever been proven to be effective.
0: Well, one of the things I wanted to ask you is, uh, people have heard for a long time now about uh, skin cancer and sunscreen and all of that, and the advice to put on sunscreen and whenever you're outside. And and there there have been other people who said, but we don't know that sunscreen really does much. And in fact, if you chart on a graph sunscreen sales as they go up, you also see skin cancer going up. And so what's your take on that? that? Is sunscreen really what people say it is? And if so, why is skin cancer rates going up when so do sunscreen sales?
1: The fact of the matter is that the best solutions for medical and health problems are based on an understanding of the science behind it. And with respect to skin cancer, which includes non-melanoma skin cancer, such as basal cell cancer, the most common cancer in humans and squamous cell cancer of the skin, as well as melanoma, are all impacted, all are caused by the sun and by ultraviolet radiation, specifically from the sun. Uh, there's no question that a program of sun protection uh, reduces the risk of skin cancer. That's been uh, well-validated scientifically. Sunscreen use is one component of Skin cancer prevention. There's no question that it works in that context. Uh, all one has to do is see what happens when you're out in the sun and you haven't used sunscreen uh, and you develop a sunburn. Uh, sunburn is closely related to the
0: development of skin cancer later in life. I'm speaking with dermatologist Dr. David LaFell. He is author of the book Total Skin, the definitive guide to whole skin care for life. Always find what you love and love what you find at Total Wine & More. With so many great bottles to choose from at the lowest price, it's easy to find your favorite Cabernet or Chardonnay. Or maybe you're more of a whiskey drinker. One of their single barrel bourbons is sure to please. With a little help from one of their friendly guides, find the perfect bottle that's just right for you. Hosting friends or family and don't have time to shop in-store? No problem. Total Wine & More makes it easy to get everything you need for any occasion with curbside pickup and delivery. But you know what the best thing about shopping at Total Wine & More is? That every bottle comes with the confidence of knowing you just found something amazing. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine and more. Curbside pickup and delivery available in most areas. Visit TotalWine.com to learn more. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North
3: Carolina. Drink responsibly. B21. Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good.
4: So, Doctor,
0: I know it sounds cliché to say that the human body is so amazing, but, but when you think about it, it really is in the way the skin heals itself. I mean, when you get a cut, your skin heals back to the way it was, and that that's pretty amazing. So how does that work? Uh, there's a whole
1: cascade of things that happen when you cut yourself. So the, the cells in your blood uh, are released, and they produce compounds that stimulate the growth of scar tissue, and then allow the epidermis, the top layer of the skin, to heal over. And uh, that healing process, whether it's in the skin or the gut or the heart, is very similar. And it highlights the fact that nature has endowed, I think, pretty much all organisms with the ability to repair themselves.
0: As a practicing physician, what are some of the other myths that you come across? And there must be others that, that people cling to about their skin and how to take care of it.
1: Well, just staying on the issue of wound healing for a moment, one of my favorite myths is the idea that applying vitamin E to a wound will help it heal. Not only is there no evidence for that scientifically, but it's been remarkable to me that there's actually no entity that will profit from selling vitamin E. So it really has become part of the folklore. Uh, Vitamin E does nothing for wound healing.
0: Others? What about uh, hydrogen peroxide? People love to put that on cuts and things because it bubbles up, and so it must be doing something.
1: Yes, very dramatic bubbling. It actually, ironically, probably does the opposite of what you're hoping it'll do. Hydrogen peroxide out of the bottle, over the counter... Uh, is a relatively weak solution, and it actually will inhibit the growth of epidermal cells. So when we have a wound that's healing naturally and we want to slow it down so that it heals nicely, we use hydrogen peroxide to slow down the healing. Uh, It serves no purpose with respect to infection in skin wounds.
0: Does diet affect your skin in any significant way?
1: You know, that's a, a question that opens up a very broad discussion, which I'll try to keep focused. There are certain foods that may have an impact in certain populations on acne, for example. But in general, uh, the notion uh, that you are what you eat, it's probably true in a general sense. But the direct measurable impact on skin, in my experience, is not uh, something that you can really... Uh, pinned down. So I think the best advice is to eat healthy and protect your skin from things that we know are harmful to it.
0: What about uh, your, your fingernails? They are, are they, they're part of dermatology, but are they the same thing as skin or what, what are they?
1: They're uh, a form of keratin, the same uh, compound that makes up hair. And so hair and nails are very much a part of the specialty of dermatology. Uh, the nail, uh, grows out of the, uh, nail matrix, which you get a sense of when you look at your nail and you see the little white lunula, like half moon we call it. And that's the area, it's almost like a pasta maker. Uh, those are tissues that are producing the nail at some regular rate. And over age, uh, over time nails change, of course, with, uh, with the, uh, aging process. Uh, but uh, they serve an important purpose uh, in terms of dexterity, being able to to function, and uh, one of the biggest complaints, of course, is uh, brittle nails, and there are various approaches to try to to improve that.
0: and hair what is you say it's the same thing as nails, but it sure doesn't look the same
1: yeah, it's a different type of uh, keratin. There are many different classes uh, in that, just like there are many different types of toyotas. Uh, There are many different types of keratin, and uh, the uh, type of hair, the color of hair, uh, the curliness of hair, all of the features of hair that vary from person to person and contribute to our individual identity uh, are uh, related to genetic factors, including, by the way, uh, the loss of hair in certain people as they get older.
0: Something, I don't know, I've always wondered about is... You look at people, say, on the beach where they're, you know, not wearing a lot of clothes, you will see pretty much everybody has some imperfections on their skin, a mole here, a mole there, freckles, whatever they are. And I've often wondered, well, well why? Why is that there? Why is that there and not two inches to the left? Why, what are those things and where do they come from?
1: So as to why things grow where they grow, I... Um, uh, I think one might ask the same question about why uh, do two different people have different shaped noses. There are probably genetic factors that are beyond uh, our ability to discriminate using genetic analysis at this point. Um, but we suspect, you know, there's genetic factors in most things and uh, certain conditions run in families, uh, skin type uh, as we call it, type 1 skin, the people that are so fair, they burn, never tan, all the way uh, down the list to people with very darkly pigmented skin uh, who who never burn. Uh, these are all determined by genetic factors.
0: But if you look at those people on the beach, older people have more of those marks on their skin than a baby does. So, so time must play a role in that.
1: Absolutely. And uh, Statistically, most of the lesions you're looking at are something called seborrheic keratoses, which I refer to as barnacles of life. These are these rough, raised, brown, uh, tan, sometimes black, uh, uh, velvety bumps, uh, very often on the back, uh, and uh, they are... Benign, completely benign. One of their main advantages is because they can look worrisome to individuals. Uh, they are often what bring the patient in to see the dermatologist and provide an opportunity for a proper full skin exam.
0: And lastly, just your your general advice. I mean, to the person who doesn't have any specific problem, but just general skin care advice is to do what?
1: Uh, have a daily routine that involves a non-soap cleanser. Uh, Soap, per se, strips the skin of its necessary oils. Uh, Moisturize with a quality moisturizer that has some sun protection factor in it. If you're going to be active while uh, outdoors, uh, use sunscreen. uh, Wear a brimmed hat, as difficult as that is for some people, and uh, follow all the guidelines about avoiding sunburn. Um, You know, my philosophy is you have to enjoy life, uh, uh, so don't lock yourself in a room, but if you're uh, the type of person that has fair skin, a family history of skin cancer, use common sense and uh, avoid the harmful effects of the sun, certainly during the peak hours.
0: But there is the recommendation, and we've quoted on this podcast some pretty reliable sources that say you do need the sun, that you have to have some sun, that it is good for you, for your mood, for vitamin D, and all of that?
1: I think that uh, the public is pretty knowledgeable about the harmful effects of the sun, but there's also a lot of misconception about the role of vitamin D, for example, and there's information out there that uh, you have to get X amount of sun in order to get normal vitamin D levels, and if you don't, you'll increase your chance of cancer and other diseases. There's really not a lot of evidence for that. Uh, Vitamin D is easily obtained through nutritional supplementation, and actually, for a relatively fair-skinned individual, the amount of sun exposure you need, if you decide you want to get some vitamin D the so-called natural way is really very limited. So to use vitamin D as an excuse to go and lie out on the beach is probably not a great strategy.
0: Yes, but, but I sometimes think people might take that advice too far. I mean, you know, human beings have been walking the planet out in the sun, you know, forever and not using sunscreen, and somehow we've managed to get this far, and, and that, you know, the sun is not necessarily... The enemy. It just you just have to do it in moderation.
1: Yeah. In fact, that's why I say uh, don't lock yourself in a room. You have to enjoy life, and you just have to be aware in your particular situation uh, about what your your risk is and modify your lifestyle according to that. I think that uh, the the harm of not enjoying the outdoors has to uh, be balanced against uh, the the harm of uh, of uh, the, whatever the risk is in an individual for developing skin cancer.
0: Oh, one other thing I wanted to ask you about it, because I've heard someone else talk about this. You know how uh, some actresses will say, you know, well, I drink 85 cups of water a day, and that's why my skin glows the way it does. And I've heard that, that that's probably nonsense.
1: Yeah, so the only thing I would uh, disagree with in what you're saying is the word probably. <laughs> It's definitely nonsense. Tom Brady came out with a book, what, a year ago, claiming that his water intake is what made his skin so great. Obviously, the reason you stay hydrated uh, at all times is because it's uh, healthy to be hydrated. And there are people who are extremely dehydrated where a, a physician or even a layman can identify changes in their skin, wrinkling. Uh, but that's a far cry from, from normal. And I think if you uh, drink more than needed, you, you'll be avoiding sun because you'll be in the restroom a lot.
0: <laughs> it's always good to separate the fact from the fiction and get the real expert advice when it comes to something so important as your skin. My guest has been dermatologist Dr. David LaFell. He is an internationally recognized expert in skin health. He's founder and chief of the Dermatology Surgery Program at Yale Medicine and author of the book Total Skin, The Definitive Guide to Whole Skin Care for Life. You'll find a link to that book in the show notes. Thank you, doctor. Thanks for being a guest. Okay, you're very welcome.
3: I bet you know some
0: people who seem to be really good at getting things done. They're usually very punctual and in fact they're so organized they get more things done in a day than some of us get done in two or three days. I know people like that and then there are others of us who struggle to get everything done and to be on time and We feel like we're just treading water, trying to keep up with the demands on our time. And for us, I'd like you to meet John Zaratsky. He is what you would call a true time management guru and co-author of the book, Make Time, How to Focus on What Matters Every Day. Hey, John,
2: welcome. Thank you very much for having me.
0: So this idea that we need to focus on the things that matter implies that maybe that's not what we're doing. So why aren't we doing it? Why wouldn't we be focusing on what matters?
2: I think a lot of people uh, have this feeling that they're busier than they want to be, that they're more distracted than they want to be. I certainly feel that way. I felt that way for a long time. Um, I worked in big companies. I worked in the tech industry at at Google and YouTube. And uh, in those Environments, back-to-back meetings, and nonstop email was kind of the the norm. That was the the default that we um, that we all turned to at work. And I think that this idea of defaults, things that we do sort of automatically at the office, for example, or the defaults that are in our devices. You know, by default, our our phones check for email automatically and show us a notification when we have a new message. These defaults really are to blame for a lot of the feelings that we have that we aren't in control of our time. So why
0: do we feel that way? Why aren't we in control of our time? Even with distractions, you would think that people have the things that they want to do, that they need to get done and that those are the things that will get done, and yes there may be some distractions, but why are we so why are we so swayed by distractions?
2: For many people, uh, there is essentially an infinite number of things that we could do, right? You, you know, We're never going to finish everything that we need to do or want to do. But the idea that we might, the idea of productivity, of trying to get everything done, be really efficient, be really optimized, squeeze it all in, uh, is very tempting. And, and you know, to a certain extent, I think it's very important. I mean, we don't want to be doing anything less than making the most of our time. But I think that we are fooled by cultural expectations into thinking that we, if we just worked a little bit harder, if we're just a little bit smarter, we might be able to to do it all. Um, but I, I, I think that's that's not a realistic outcome for most of us.
0: Yeah, and I think I think you just hit on a really important point that there's an infinite number of things we can do, and it seems that you can never catch the end of that, because the more things you cram into, there's always going to be more things to do. So the, if your goal is to just cram more things into less time, that still doesn't get everything done and just stresses you out even more.
2: Yeah, that's right. And and the things that make us feel distracted and scattered, like our email and social media, um, the news, the stock market, every time we look at these things, our time becomes fragmented. We have less time for the things that we, you know, when we really sit back and, and look at the big picture, we have less time for the things that we we wish we were doing. But but it, it checking those things actually kind of makes the feeling uh, worse in a couple of ways, because not only do we have less time, but, but we have more ideas for things we could do, right? If we check our email and we see an email from somebody who wants our help with something, um, then that's another thing that we do. And we say, well, I'll put it on the to-do list. Uh, and, and that to-do list uh, grows more quickly than we can ever possibly check the items off well there is this
0: theory i've heard other time management people mention and i'd like to get your comment on it because i subscribe to this idea that by definition you do what's important because you've chosen to do them over other things which must be less important or you'd be doing those things so what we do is important it may not be what we want to do but it is important enough to do,
2: yeah, that's I, I don't know if I agree with that. I think that that might be like the economists uh, myth that humans are rational economic actors, you know that we always make the choice uh, with our money to maximize utility i I do think that we are at a, uh, a subconscious level, we are sort of deciding what's important to us, but I also think that we are creatures who evolved uh, in a very different world from the one that we live in today. Humans evolved to be distractible and to uh, really care about gossip and the stories of others. Um, and we evolved to value random rewards. You know, this is the same principle that makes slot machines addictive, that makes Twitter addictive, that uh, if we were hunting and gathering for food, keeps us going out on another, another hunt um, even when sometimes we return empty-handed. So I do think that we are sometimes not as much in control of our decisions as we think we are.
0: Well, the fact that you disagreed with me, which I like, let me come at this another way and and, and see if you maybe I can make my point better. That sometimes we think we know what's important, like you know, we're gonna write that great American novel. But somehow we mm-hmm. never quite get around to doing it. All of a sudden, the closet has to be cleaned, or the dishes have to be done. <laughs> that yeah. that we say we know what's important, and we but we never get to them. So maybe they're really not that important.
2: Yeah, I see what you're getting at, and I think that this starts to to get into the idea of goals. Uh, well, I'll I'll tell you just a little story from my own background. I I started my career uh, working as a designer at a tech startup, and I went on to work at, at uh, bigger companies. I worked at Google for about ten years, and worked at Google Ventures, which is a VC firm funded by Google. Always as a designer, and then later uh, focused more on writing. And early on, uh, when I worked at that tech startup, I had this goal that I wanted to have my own tech startup one day, and that was something that I, you know, it, it very much fit what what you're describing as the, you know, the the equivalent of writing that great American novel someday, you know, it was this, this thing that if you had asked me, you know, what do you want to do with your life? What's important to you? Um, I would have said, yeah, it's to, it's to start my own company, my own tech startup. But, um, very much as you're saying, I found myself making decisions that were not taking me in that direction. And I had to examine why that was, was it because I was, you know, bad at, at, life, you know, was it because I was bad at at making the right decisions and spending my time on the right things? Or was it because that goal had actually changed for me? Um, had I been too focused on that abstract idea in the long term, uh, to the, to the extent that I was not focused on what I was doing day to day or what was really important to me in those moments. And I decided that it actually was the latter, that 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 goal had changed or maybe as I learned more about the goal, it was no longer a goal. So um, that was one of the experiences that really led me to, to think a lot more about how to make each day feel really meaningful and really important rather than being sort of overly obsessed with these, these big grand lofty dreams.
0: You know what else fascinates me about time, and it relates to what we were just talking about, about what people choose to do and not do and what their goals and priorities are. And the best example of this is Christmas, when people will say, oh my God, there's so much to do, I'll never get it all done. And come Christmas morning, it's all done. Somehow people manage to get it done. And and people who are chronically late, and they'll tell you, it's just who I am. I'm, I, I just run late. I don't know. But when they have to catch a plane and they know the plane isn't going to wait for them, somehow they manage to get to the airport on time. It is amazing to me how people do what they have to do or what they think they have to do.
2: When you have a deadline like that, and this happens with work and it happens as you're saying with, with stuff at home, we do have this incredible ability to shed all the unimportant things, to, to really, um, to, you know, to spend less time in those mindless automatic ways and more time on the thing that we need to do, the thing that's really pressing. One of the things we write about in this book is about kind of doing that exercise intentionally every day. So rather than waiting for some external deadline or, or freak out moment where it's like, Oh, my God, I have to like Christmas is tomorrow. There's there's a million things I have to do. I have to get them done to, you know, hopefully much less stressful way to to every day. Try to be honest with yourself about the one thing that you you want to make time for. Not the not the the big long term goal, but but the thing that you want to look back on the day and say, yeah, I'm happy that I did that. I'm glad that I made time for that. And use a little bit of that, you know, sort of motivation that comes from recognizing what's important short-term to try to structure our days around the things that day after day really are going to bring joy to our lives.
0: So talk about your approach, your philosophy, and maybe more importantly, your strategy uh, handling time
2: four steps, sort of a a core framework of four simple daily steps. And it actually starts with choosing a daily highlight, something that you want to prioritize and protect in your day. And this can be something at work. It could be something at home. It could be something that has to get done or something that you just want to do. Uh, We usually find that sort of a 60 to 90 minute activity is kind of the sweet spot for that highlight. And Obviously it's not the only thing you're going to do that day, but it's kind of the, it's the motivation. It provides the clarity. It's the, it's the thing that you look forward to. And then you can, you can back that up with the next step, which we call laser, which is all about uh, taking control of your attention so that you're not wasting time on checking email and Twitter and Instagram and the news more often than you'd like to be, you know, I use all those things, um, and those things are—they're all great and useful in their own ways. Um, but they—they they do have a tendency to kind of suck our time away. So create barriers to this type of distraction to make it more easy to stay focused on that highlight. So how do you how do you recommend people do that? I think that one of the the tricks to sort of reclaiming your attention is actually to add that friction back in to make it more difficult. So, for example, one of the most powerful things that I've done, this was an idea that was um, inspired by my co-author, Jake Knapp, that I uh, wrote Make Time With, is to remove all of the distracting apps from my phone. So we call it the distraction-free phone. And the idea is that any app that has an endless supply of interesting and, and replenishing content, we call those infinity pool apps, um, to remove those from the phone. So. My phone doesn't have email on it, doesn't have Twitter, doesn't have Instagram, doesn't have the news. Um, and I still do all of those things. I just don't have that constant temptation of the phone in my pocket or in my hand uh, to, you know, do a quick check of something that turns into a, a not so quick check. Um, another tactic that's that's in the book that I use every single day is to log out of those distracting websites on the computer. So I've actually changed my password for say Twitter to something that's a kind of a random string of characters that I can't possibly remember, stored it in a password manager app, and then logged out of that site. So if I sort of subconsciously type in uh, twitter.com, which, you know, I do a few times a day without really thinking about it, then instead of the feed full of interesting content, I see the login screen. And I think, oh, yeah, that's right. I need to pause. And I need to think about why I'm doing this right now, and if this is actually how I want to be spending my time.
0: It seems that so much of the talk about time management and productivity and all this is all about work and getting more stuff done that you have to get done, chores, projects, and all that. But don't you think it's also important that you, you've got to build in the fun stuff too? Otherwise, it's, it gets pretty dull.
2: I think it's super important. I think that this idea of a highlight it can be something that's that feels very productive. It can be something that you need to get done or you want to get done at work. But it can also be something that's just fun, something that you you want to do. For example, uh, I'm in San Francisco right now, but I, I live in Wisconsin. And the night before I flew out to San Francisco, my wife and I were planning to go to a baseball game, see the Milwaukee Brewers And uh, I had a bunch of work to do that day. But my highlight for that day was actually the baseball game at the end of the day. And that helped me kind of keep everything in perspective. It helped me make sure that I had finished my work in time, that I had packed for the trip the next day um, so that I could really enjoy that that game. You know, I could really enjoy going there with my wife and and her family. and, uh, And and I could really enjoy that highlight. Um, rather than trying to to squeeze it in at the end of a long day.
0: Well, I know it's cliche to say, you know, all we have is time, but it's true. All we have is time. And it's good to get some ideas on how to better use it, how to get control of it, how to get a rope around it, so you can use your time better. My guest has been John Zaratsky. He is a time management expert and co-author of the book, Make Time, How to Focus on What Matters Every Day. There's a link to the book in the show notes. Thanks for being here, John.
2: All right, cool.
0: If you have 30 minutes, there are a bunch of things you can find in your closets and garage that you can toss right now with no regrets and miraculously have a ton more storage space. For example, newspapers, catalogs, and magazines. If you've kept them, you will never read them. You really won't, so throw them out. Cast off clothes and shoes. If you have clothes that have migrated to the garage, (laughs) come on, they're done. Throw them away. Also, check the far ends in the closet. Clothes that have made it to the far end of the rod in the closet probably never get worn and could be tossed out. Old electronics, like computers, printers, and fax machines, VCRs. Even if you could fix them, you won't fix them because there would be no purpose in fixing them. Broken or duplicate tools. You really don't need four hammers. And a broken pair of pliers has no function. Old paint cans. Unopened paint lasts 10 years. Once opened, it lasts 5 years maximum. If it's older than that, it has no purpose and you can throw it out. And that is the podcast today. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening to Something You Should Know. No matter what moves you made last year... Turbo tax experts make them count. Did you maybe buy a second property to rent out? That's a move. Did you go back to school to get your degree? That too is a move, a smart move. Did you commute to work across state lines? You see, that's a move. Did you relocate for a fresh start? Well, that's the definition of a move. Maybe you moved into a house boat instead of a house house. Or perhaps you crushed it in the stock market in 2023. TurboTax experts make all your moves count. Getting you every credit and deduction you deserve, filing with 100% accuracy, and getting your max refund guaranteed. Switch to TurboTax. Make your moves, and they will make them count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live